Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I'm Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. Many might not have noticed in early April this year a very troubling story about a massacre of around 300 civilians in the village of Murat in Mali. Human Rights Watch called it the worst single atrocity reported in Mali's decade-long armed conflict. But who carried it out? It seems like Malian forces were operating in tandem with non-French-speaking white foreign soldiers or instructors. The UK, the US, France and others say these instructors were from the Russian private security firm Wagner. This isn't the first such case. Reports of shadowy groups of mercenaries operating under the rubric of the Russian private military contractor Wagner operating in conflict-affected contexts around the world have trickled out for years, but we still don't really know who Wagner are. In this episode, we speak to Andreas Krieg, Associate Professor at the School of Security Studies at King's College London, Royal College of Defence Studies, Adam Sando, postdoctoral researcher in post-colonial hierarchies in peace and conflict at the University of Bayreuth, Helene Olsen, a doctoral candidate in the Department of War Studies and a graduate teaching assistant in the Defence Studies Department and in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. We asked them about the rise of private military contractors and attempt to understand what Wagner is and what we need to understand about how it operates in conflict-affected contexts. So there have been a number of stories about the private military contractors and especially those with links to Russia um, in places like the Sahel region in West Africa, Ukraine or Syria. But we wanted to use this episode to provide some context to their use. So can we start with asking what are private military contractors and what are some examples of them? So PMSC stands for private military and security companies. And both practically and within the academic world, there's a lot of discussion about who are actually working for these companies and what do they actually do. So definitional questions are very hard to answer. Some companies bark at the sort of grouping with the military in this sort of operation. Some people see themselves as a more of a security providers. Some examples are well-known, such as the Blackwater Company that operated in Iraq and Afghanistan, but a company such as D4S could also be called a private security company, at least. What is D4S, Aline? G4S? G4S is a big international company that works in many different countries doing many different things. Um, it can be private security for companies, but it can also be much wider, larger scale. But it's not one of those companies that we normally associate with when we think of private military and security companies, these PMSCs. Many people think of them as providing logistical support. They do weapon systems maintenance, protection in war zones, for example. So it's really a wide number of companies that 
undertake a wide number of activities in many different contexts. They work both for states, they work for NGOs, they work for the UN, and for maybe sometimes less than reputable people. Yeah, yeah. Andreas, would you have anything to add to this definition? Now, I would say that generally a private military, I don't like the definition private military and security company because it's too holistic. And, you know, it's very difficult to really say where the boundaries of this market are. I mean, obviously, 10 years ago, the market was very state-centric. Most of the clients were state clients. And the overall size of the market was around $350 to $500 billion, which is massive. And it all depends on what you include in this. And, you know, as Helene already said correctly, I mean, this is a very diverse market and it has ever been more diverse as of late. But I would say a private security company is, is any kind of company that provides services that's, that, that provides anything within the broader realm of security. And the vast majority of these services are benign. They're non-armed, you know, they're in the consultancy space. It's about maintenance, about training. And then you have private military companies, which are companies that provide services that are more kinetic in nature, that are armed in nature, and that provide combat support services or combat services, actually. And it's the teeny tiny fraction of the entire market. The vast majority of all companies provide non-armed services, non-lethal services. And when they do provide armed services, they actually provide defensive armed services to provide, you know, um, sort of, um, you know, dynamic or static security services for a range of different clients. I mean, it starts from the bouncer in front of a, a club all the way to an armed contractor that provides a, a security for a convoy in a malign environment, in an operational environment. But these are private security companies. And the problem emerges when you start to put the private military companies and private security companies in the same pot. Um, because then you're, you're mixing up the likes of executive, executive outcomes or Wagner, which are private military companies, with the likes of Aegis, G4S, uh, and other more security-focused um, operational, uh, you know, operations and, and, and companies. And then just thinking about their development more generally, it's, it seems like they can be like everything and nothing with that, with that definition. And when you talk about the military contractors, it feels like they are from the beginning of war itself with things like mercenaries. And it's, it's then hard to distinguish what, what is particularly new about them. It'd be interesting to hear from, from, from you about how much can we see them as a, a continuity of what we've had before? Or, or is there something like substantively different about what we're seeing in conflict areas now? Yeah, I mean, this could be uh, a, a lecture theory a series for an entire semester, actually looking at the history of, of private security, because the history of security and the history of the military is always one where contractors like commercial entities and the military have kind of cooperated or where non-state actors have cooperated with state actors. That is something that has existed throughout history and there's really nothing new about it. What is What is new, though, is that, first of all, contractors today, when we look about, when we talk about contractors are employees of a locally registered company these are commercial actors they're not there they're not seeking private wealth or you know private profit they're there for business profit which is different from a mercenary i mean a mercenary tentatively has always been defined as an individual that's there for individual individual wealth there weren't any contracts involved in that um, and they don't operate for companies, but they operate for themselves. I mean, these are very loose outfits, if, if you will. Um, as soon as it becomes commercialized, and that's obviously a definition that has been advanced by the industry itself, because the industry in the you know late 2000s, uh, you know, during the, the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, they wanted to obviously move away from that mercenary image and say, 
say, uh, you know, we are just legitimate companies that operate, you know, within the confines of law, and we're we're um, we're employing uh, individuals based on contracts, and not, uh, you know, you know, to to say we are, you know, there's a degree of legitimacy in in what they're doing. Um, so the industry has obviously evolved from um, um, from what used to be a very much a state centric approach to providing security. And what I mean by that is that the the idea of the state internalizing all of the f security functions of the state um, is or of public security, if you will, is, is somewhat a historic an anomaly. Um, it's something that if you look throughout history was never the case. But I would say with the Livet en masse in the late, 19, uh, late 18th century, uh, and then obviously the emergence of the nation state in the 19th century and the development of national armies, the, our idea of what the military is all about and what security is all about is that the state internalizes security functions, uh, whether they're on the law enforcement end or on the military end of the spectrum. Um, and the market is, is, you know, has a, a very niche role, if, if any. And I think we are, we've been moving away from this since the 1990s at least um where we see where we see a growing privatization of security anyway that is top down and bottom up so the, the top down is the commercialization aspect of that uh, the bottom up is the emergence of more non-state actors in war um, and as that is emerging um, this privatization of security more widely um, we also see a growing role for commercial actors in and, and the emergence of a, a, an actual market for force if you will and as i said before this market is worth a several hundred billion dollars per year depending on what you include in this market but what has changed more and what is so drastically different is that you have nation states which are nation states that never really existed throughout history pre-18th century and these very nation states which are still nation states are now engaging themselves into the delegation of security and military functions to the market and non-state actor, so, actors so the idea of surrogate relationships and assemblages being created between state and non-state actor that is kind of the new aspect of that and we see uh, you know there's there is an increase of that use throughout um throughout the world in general i mean what we see is a more network centric approach to statecraft whereby the delegation of statecraft to non-state actors to surrogates of all kinds and all shapes um, is is increasing and that's not only in the military kinetic space but we see states relying on trolls and bots uh, on hacktivists, on uh, netizens, um, them relying on on militia groups locally and overseas, them relying on uh, private military and security companies, obviously, um, mercenaries themselves, which are individuals who are fighting who are not based in, in a company. So what we see is a growing commercialization and privatization of the security realm more generally, and that's done through delegation to networks. Um, and networks are the opposite of obviously hierarchical bureaucracies, which are state owned, such as the military, for example, or law enforcement. Um, and these networks become very, very powerful parts of global competition in the 21st century. So we don't see state on state wars anymore. So we're seeing global competition, which is not just about military conflict, but all kinds of influence operations. And here networks are absolutely the, going to be the, at the heart of 21st century statecraft. Uh, and this is kind of the context where we need to, in which we under, need to understand the emergence of the private and the commercial um, security and military industry. I think Andreas has a point when saying that one of the key problems with trying to define what private military companies actually is, is, is this idea that there is indeed a divide between private security provision and public security provision. And when you look historically, it's really hard to sort of actually grapple with this distinction. 
If you look um, to the Thirty Years' War, for example, in the 17th century in Europe, there were companies who hired people to fight for them, who hired themselves out. Some people have said that these were sort of pre-modern private security companies that we see today. So, and if we think about the distinction between what is a contract and what is a mercenary, these categories are, are maybe more fluid than we would like it to be. One of the key distinction in international law when we talk about who is a mercenary is motivational factors. But one of the problems is how do we determine people's motivation for fighting or engaging in a conflict? Are you a volunteer? Are you fighting because you find it exciting? Are you a contractor because you are a American vet who was discharged but need more money and therefore go back into the space in Iraq and Afghanistan? There are lots of individual factors that play into the space. So I think it is important when we talk about these issues to think both of a more sort of overall geopolitical aspect of it, but also think on a more individual level and how that affects what is happening. And we see the same trends, obviously, in the current conflict in Ukraine. One thing that I think is very central to add, especially between our categorizations of what is considered a private security company versus what is considered a private military company, is that the latter are in the business to kill, right? Uh, just to stress a little bit more uh, what Andreas was saying, the kinetic aspect of the services that are provided by private military corporations are fundamentally different in terms of their use of coercive violence. Whereas uh, G4S or uh, Securecom or any of the thousands of different private security companies will be much more emphasizing uh, in their services uh, practices such as risk analysis or guarding different stores or guarding uh, individual politicians or, or elites, for example. But private military companies are in it to wage uh, battle and participate in armed conflict. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, private military contractors, they do different things when they are used by Russia or the Gulf states or the US or, for example, a country like Nigeria. How are they different? So yeah, what, we, what we've seen over the last 20 years or so is an evolution of the entire industry. And I think the standard of commercialization of security somewhat was set by Western states, uh, the United States in particular, UK, um, in these operations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, at some point in 2010, the uh, State Department and Defense Department, the US government in, its, in itself had 240, 50,000 contractors working for them in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the vast majority of them are obviously private contractors. But it just show, shows you the extent to which the government actually relied on the market to deliver these operations. And that had set, that really set a standard that other non-Western states have tried to emulate and have done so because that market has emerged. And as these very lucrative Western government contracts have faded away with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and Iraq, many companies needed to look for alternatives. And these alternatives could be found in uh, in the East, if you will. And I think the key, and we're going to talk about Wagner later on, obviously Wagner is an important part of that. Um, but what we've seen, for example, the United Arab Emirates is a small state. Uh, it's a small state that in itself has an in, in, in inherent 
issue with uh, capacity shortages. It's a small country of uh, a million indigenous people. They can't maintain a military large enough to actually get engaged in all these different conflicts that they are engaged in. Hence, they rely increasingly on the market. So they've built their own private military companies, and I'm saying military companies because they're actually directly involved in war fighting. Um, these are more on the mercenary end of the spectrum. Some of them are commercial entities. Some of them are loose networks of individuals as well that they've used in Yemen, that they've used in Libya. Um, they've they've worked with people like Eric Prince, for example, uh, who's the you know infamous uh, leader and founder of, of Blackwater back in the 2000s, um, who has always been an advocate for a more expansive use of, of, of private military contractors in war fighting, actually not in a security function, but actually to apply lethal force. And what we've seen is the erosion of the anti-mercenary norm, if there ever was one. So while Western companies a decade ago would say very clearly that they would not get involved in war fighting, that they're not providing uh, combat support services, these companies now that are based in the UAE, based in Russia, and we've seen some of them also in Western Africa, particularly in Nigeria, they're saying we are providing combat support services. We offer services to help indigenous militaries to augment their capabilities, and we help them to achieve strategic objectives through warfighting, which is very different from providing security services um, to uh, to Western states. And I think that is there, there is a bit of a race to the bottom, if you will, because Western governments have very clearly said they wouldn't outsource combat support or combat services, warfighting capabilities to the market. Non-Western states haven't made that commitment. And for countries like the UAE, who are very wealthy, but don't have a big military and are engaged in a variety of different conflicts, they, are, they rely on mercenary networks to actually achieve their objectives and then help these kind of mercenary networks embed with their local surrogates, which are militia groups, for example, Haftar and the LNA in, in Libya or in, in, in the south of Yemen with the STC. So it, it, the mercenaries and, and, and the private market for military force was very much an integral part of UAE foreign and security policy, and it still is, by the way. And that has really changed the, um, the overall approach um, that the market is taking. So you've got this Western-based market, which is very restricted, and then you've got a market outside the Western world pivoting more towards the East, which does a range of other services that Western companies would never provide. And one of the, the companies that you mentioned is Wagner, and that's high on media outlets' headlines, and we're hearing about it a lot. But I'm interested, what are Wagner doing? What can we see them doing in places like the Central African Republic and Mali? What are the types of operations that they're doing? That's a very important question and a very interesting question. Part of the challenges of studying private military corporations when it's nearly impossible to find clear documentation about the commercialization process is that uh, we see that there are very confused and uh, murky connections between states and governments that use them and the commercial entities themselves. This is the case for the Wagner Group. Uh, now, the Wagner Group is led by someone called Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is essentially a close associate of Russia's President Vladimir Putin. And this individual, uh, he actually has a background in catering uh, and is viewed as, uh, generally speaking, an oligarch within the Russian regime. Now, being at the head of 
the Wagner Group and having these connections to the Russian state. It's important to understand as well that mercenaries and private military corporations are illegal according to the Russian constitution. And so while we see the establishment of multiple different private military companies, let's say, in Russia, it's very, very hard to tell about, let's say, the legal ambiguities of a group like Wagner. Now, Wagner has been used in several different armed conflicts in Africa. Uh, in particular, uh, they have been used in Mozambique to counter uh, different insurgency activities in the Cabo Delgado region of the north of the country where the Islamic State in Central African province is active. They have also uh, obtained contracts in Sudan, in Central African Republic, in Mali, and as well in Libya. This obviously adds to their involvement in places like Syria and the types of problems that uh, were encountered in Syria, especially between elements of the Wagner Group and U.S. Special Forces that uh, had several battles, as a matter of fact, within that armed conflict. In a place like Central African Republic or Mali, it is very um, interesting to note the types of activities that Wagner has done. Now, obviously, these are both governments that were formerly colonized by France. And the use of Wagner as mercenary groups and as protection forces kind of challenges the post-colonial hierarchy that we normally understand to reign between the French state and its former colonies. In a place like Central African Republic, initially, Wagner Group was used uh, in two functions. First, to provide, let's say, capacity building training to the Force Armée Centrafricaine, or the Central African Republic military. But also, in a coup-prone uh, state, like the Central African uh, Republic, Wagner Group was also used for presidential security. And so, uh, very clearly, it was established in the contract that President Archange Touadera was given private security from uh, uh, Wagner mercenaries. Now, in let's say we see an expansion of the activities of the Wagner Group in the Central African Republic, especially in December of 2020. And during that year, a coalition of different armed groups called the CPC, the Coalition des Patriotes pour le Changement, uh, essentially tried to take over the entire country and take over Bangui, the nation's capital. And at that time, were it not for, let's say, Russian instructors, clearly members of the Wagner Group, uh, were it not for their activities to defend the capital, we would clearly have seen another violent takeover of the Central African government uh, in that space. And so since December 2020, there has been an accompaniment of Wagner mercenaries with the Force Armée Centrafricaine, the Central African military, to take back most of the different urban spaces of the country, even though they are few and far between. This is very, very important, as a matter of fact, because in a country like the Central African Republic, where we've had years of chronic insecurity, generalized insecurity and violence, notably at the hand of different uh, armed groups, but also different criminal actors and cross-border actors. Uh, when we see Wagner mercenaries or Russian partners, again, there's that ambiguity of who is who, accompanying the Central African army, we see most civilians that don't fall to different types of exactions and, and violent reprisals from these actors, 
but those that kind of stay out of their way end up appreciating the violence that is uh, undertaken by those by those two groups to provide some level of stability. And so while most of us in the West would consider Progosian and Wagner Group in general as this boogeyman in Africa and clearly causing multiple problems and challenges to the foreign policies of Western states, which admittedly they do, locally for many people in the Central African Republic that have faced generalized insecurity for so long, it is actually a wellspring or a blessing to have those people be there, provided again that they don't fall short and become targets of uh, those military actors themselves. Can I just follow up with a question here, Adam? How do states like the Central African Republic or Mali pay these people? Because they must be quite expensive. This is a really interesting question because both the governments of the Central African Republic and Mali have denied that they have a contract with mercenaries or a private military company called the Wagner Group. Instead, they both emphasize that they have a defense partnership with the Russian state. And so while Western sources and local sources advocate the view that this is indeed the Wagner Group that is providing these services, we don't actually know what these individuals will be paid uh, individually as members of the Wagner Group or what the company will be paid. But we have general indications instead of uh, what it seems like these private military corporations will be uh, how they will be remunerated. And in a state like Mali or the Central African Republic, where uh, they're often under international sanctions or regional community organization sanctions, as for the case of Mali, the governments in question provide mining concessions to the Wagner Group. And so, generally speaking, in Central African Republic, we see the Wagner Group uh, elements getting paid in terms of mining concessions like diamond mines. Uh, in Mali, uh, their involvement in the country is very, very recent, starting in about, let's say, December of 2021 or January of 2022. And it seems that, according to diverse journalistic reports, that Wagner Group in Mali will be paid through mining concessions in gold mines that are inactive in the south and the west of the country. I wanted to ask you what you think the risks of Wagner are and how we mitigate these risks. But listening to you then, it feels like a lack of understanding means that we don't, that maybe risk is the wrong term, depending on who you ask. Maybe it's a risk, maybe it's a blessing. Do we even understand the risks that Wagner poses? And if so, do we know how to mitigate them? Yeah, risk is a really, really important question, especially if we take it as a given that this these are indeed uh, Russian state-backed private military corporations. I personally think that, that they are. I see a few pieces of evidence uh, that are very, very convincing. In particular, uh, on two different occasions, senior Russian government officials, including President Putin and Sergei Lavrov, the current foreign affairs minister, have made a differentiation between their activities in a place like Mali or Central African Republic and those of the Wagner Group. When asked during a summit with uh, French President uh, Emmanuel Macron just recently, uh, President Vladimir Putin uh, 
clearly stated that they have no connection to the Wagner Group and the Wagner Group activities in Mali and Central African Republic are their own business. Meaning that while the Malian uh, Prime Minister or the Central African uh, President stated categorically that Wagner is not in the country, but rather that they are uh, Russian state partners, military partners in a defense accord, uh, we see this contradiction between the President of Russia or the the Foreign Affairs Minister of Russia and uh, the uh, heads of state of the Malian government and the Central African Republic, uh, government of Central African Republic. So in this way, I think we can fairly say that these are definitely private military corporations, right? But we just don't know the terms and conditions of what the agreements actually are uh, and the different, uh, let's say, calculations that are involved uh, with those services that are rendered. Now, the risks are very, very clear, uh, especially in terms of human rights abuses. In Central African Republic, Wagner has been accused of torture, of forced disappearances. Uh, three different Russian journalists went to the Central African Republic to investigate and to report on Wagner activities in June 2018 and were found dead, most likely at the hands of Central African Republic soldiers accompanied by Wagner forces. More recently in Mali, there have been several very important cases of massacres against civilians in the Mopti and in the uh, Segu regions. In Mopti, the worst case, uh, this is documented by Human Rights Watch, uh, the accusation made against the Malian armed forces and Wagner troops are that they killed over 300 civilians in the town of Muha, which is a very important cattle market space just north of, of Mopti. And so this is very, very important to recognize. Now, while mercenaries like members of the Wagner group should be you know, held accountable according to international humanitarian law and the laws of war, that is, there can be trials that are uh, made against members of private military corporations. Most likely, if they've been hired in order to stamp out an insurgency and to do whatever needs to be done in order to make that happen, the states that are involved will probably not be willing to try to prosecute uh, these members of the private military corporations. And so we see a very clear willingness on behalf of Wagner Group, for example, to get their hands dirty and to kill uh, civilians in the process. One thing that is important to remember as well, and this goes along and adds to what Andreas was mentioning just a little bit earlier, is the kind of influence piece that is offered in the services of Wagner. Very clearly in Central African Republic and in Mali, we see once Wagner Group officials start actually operating in those countries, the development of troll farms, both in Bamako and in Bangui. We see fake accounts and we see the kind of uh, stirring up of public opinion in favor of Russia, countering former historical partners, in this, in this case, the French government, uh, and calling for the, let's say, 
denunciation or the uh, breaking of different international military treaties between France and, and the governments that are in post-colonial Africa. And so uh, this isn't just the ability to go and stamp out an insurgency, but it's also an information operation. Uh, and very recently, the French and the Russians have been trading barbs along with the Malian government uh, regarding, let's say, very clear information operations that were meant to malign the French military in Mali. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I think that was a, a very precise recount of, of, of what is happening with Mali. I think I want to ask you all a question. What is it that we can do? I mean, from obviously from very different um, positions, but as as, let's say, as states in the global north, for example, is there a way to mitigate these risks that um, Adam just elucidated? What should we be doing about the use of private military contractors? So what, what can we do uh, to mitigate the risks of the commercialization, privatization of security? Very little, because it's something that, as I said in the beginning, it's something that starts started from the top down. Uh, and then happened from the bottom up as well. So bottom up privatization is, you know, the disintegration of state security functions, uh, failed state, failed governance that then leads to non-state actors to picking up arms and providing security locally. And the top down element is obviously uh, hiring of companies by states, commercial entities, NGOs, IGOs that all contribute to the privatization of security. And the more there is a privatization of security, which is a trend that, you know, is is obviously coming from different direction is very difficult to stop is not something that you know you can you know it's not a trend that you can just reverse um also because i think states are becoming less and less relevant in network centric statecraft in the 21st century and obviously the russians deliberately have used and designed wagner as a tool to operate with a degree of dissociation with plausible deniability to discreetly achieve strategic objectives out of area where and, and it's important to here differentiate between plausible deniability and discretion because Plausible deniability refers to the Russians saying we're actually not involved, although I do think they are very clearly a state tool. They're trained in Russia, they're financed through Russian networks and also partially financed, obviously, through um, networks in the United Arab Emirates. And that's important to understand in the context of networks. So the Wagner Group is a network of, of different shell companies and private firms that are not just based in Russia, but they operate globally, they extract wealth globally through you know concessions obviously but also um, get support from other international actors like the uae and this kind of network centric uh, approach is something that creates plausible deniability for the russians but also a means for russia to tell their own citizens that you know they're not involved in syria that they're not involved in the central african republic or they're not involved in libya because we need to re um, recall that in 2015 when russia did get involved with its own military in syria and you had body bags coming home there was quite a lot of uproar within russia despite the fact that this being obviously a very authoritarian regime people were asking questions they were saying why are we in syria um, and that kind of really led to the development of Wagner as a tool to achieve strategic objectives with a, with a degree of discretion, at least vis-a-vis -vis public opinion at home to say, you know, we're doing this, um, but we're actually not using our own soldiers, although they were using their own soldiers. So there is there are huge incentives for states to continue doing this. Um, as I wrote in my book, Surrogate Warfare, Surrogate Warfare is the 21st century approach to security provision. 
by Western and non-Western states, by liberal and authoritarian states. There is the incentive, the opportunity that comes with it is greater than the risk. And I don't think that there is really anything we want to do about it. So domestically, we create, you know, multi-stakeholder initiatives, particularly in the UK, you know, we have a, a self regulatory regime for the industry that works very, very well. The same kind of applies to the United States. There's a standards regime in place, again, also works very well. But obviously, if there are, and this is particularly addressed towards the um, the intelligence services, if you want to find clandestine means to achieve ends, then private military companies or private military outfits, whatever you want to call them, are great ways of actually doing that. Because I do think that um, they, you know, they operate with plausible deniability. And there aren't any international regimes or legal restrictions, regulatory regimes to 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 stop this. So we might be able to increase domestic regulation, uh, whether self-regulation or top-down state regulation. But it's not really going to um, undermine or reverse the trend of more privatization, because that's where the trend is going, especially as we're moving away from kinetic military operations, increasingly in a space of information warfare, uh, influence operations, psyops which rely again on non-state actors and they need non-state actors to achieve plausible deniability. Um, so as we move down that road, I do think that, you know, also Western liberal states have a greater incentive to actually continue doing this. And this leads to a uh, to the apolarization of the international comp competitive environment and apolarization of the international environment as well um, and polarization of the geostrategic um, environment uh, to an extent that um, you know, it's a race to the bottom. We don't know where this is going to stop. So I'm I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic that there is that there is anything tangible that we can do about it. I think it's important to remember that the trend that we see in the Gulf states with Wagner, the use by African states of companies like Wagner, is built on or mapped on a trend that was started by Western liberal democratic states. It's a can of worms that, so to speak, we opened. And even though there are international regulatory regimes, such as international law, ICOCA, etc., it's very difficult for us in the West to judge what is happening around the world when we started the trend. That's my own personal opinion. I, I definitely think that it's, it's worth talking about, as, as Adam mentioned earlier, the horrific human rights abuses that we've seen at the hands of supposedly Wagner employees supported by the Russian state. But what we concretely can do, that's just very, it's going to be very difficult, especially as Andreas also mentioned, a lot of the, the states that today use these companies do not have the capabilities internally to sustain the kind of military and security effort that they want to. And the only resources that they have is to purchase them, whether or not that is direct combat capabilities, strategic or tactical support, or whether it's sort of more low-key, logistical, or risk analysis support. But it's important to remember that they have to purchase this kind of support. And what we in the West can do about it is, is frankly very little. I think there are a couple things that we can do in terms of activists and researchers and people that are trying to better understand the dynamic of private military corporations individually, though. In particular, I think it's very, very important to try not to sensationalize the activities of private military corporations. 
Now, if we were to uh, look at the experience of the Wagner Group, for example, in Libya or in Mozambique, very clearly we see that these are not military actors that can hold their own in different types of insurgencies. As a matter of fact, Wagner failed miserably in its experience in Mozambique fighting Islamic State Central African province insurgents. Uh, this also, to a certain extent, the uh, case in Libya as well. And while they have been able to help, let's say, gain a foot of stability in the Central African Republic, generally speaking, this was hard going and they did lose several fighters. So it is important to recognize that uh, these are not all powerful actors that are going to change geopolitics uh, in fundamental ways. The second thing I want to just build on what Helene was just mentioning is that there is a very important place that we need to remember in the use of these different private military corporations, and that is the post-colonial relationship. One of the reasons, uh, kind of key reasons, why we have the involvement of uh, Wagner in the Central African Republic is because the French government, along with the American government, supporting the UN has placed an arms embargo on the Central African Republic for numerous reasons, and they're very often legitimate reasons, according to many. But generally speaking, the reason why Wagner is now involved is because the Russian state allowed for and helped broker exceptions to the arms embargo in order to help the Central African Republic government get the types of weapons that it needed in order to uh, arm its military. And they needed uh, as a, kind of an exchange for this brokering, you know, a way to help the Russian government also uh, enrich uh, different uh, networks that it's associated with. And this, obviously, the, the answer was, was Wagner. In the Malian context, we see a slow degradation of French Malian, Franco-Malian diplomacy, especially since May 2021. And Wagner was kind of an elegant answer uh, to support the Malian state, uh, and in particular, the transitional authorities that had taken power in August of 2020. And so the key relationship of Mali being a formerly colonized space, Central African Republic being a former formerly colonized space, of France and the degradation of that metropole colony relationship means that there is a challenging of these post-colonial post hierarchies. And it's important to take every, uh, every environment on its own terms with regard to that relationship. When we do, we recognize that it's actually Malian elites that have a central role as actors in this relationship, or it's Central African Republic actors that have a central role in this relationship in the use of and the contracting for different private military corporations uh, like the Wagner Group. Yeah, I just want to emphasize what Adam was just saying, that these companies, these groups, regardless of what's talking about Wagner and the other group, is that they're not, although it might seem like it, all powerful and they do mess up. They're not always as efficient as their employer want them to be. We've seen in the past that their use have also created strategic implications. For example, the U.S. used the now infamous group Blackwater in Iraq, and they were directly involved in the Fallujah incident in 2004, 
where four Blackwater employees were killed by Iraqi insurgents while escorting a convoy through the city, and afterwards their bodies were brutally mutilated. The Blackwater employees had not coordinated the actions and their route through Fallujah with the appropriate authorities in the area, and the mission itself had not been sufficiently planned. So as a direct result of the Fallujah incident, where the four Blackwater employees were killed, the U.S. larger staged a major military offensive that had not been previously planned. Now, that's just one small example of where the use and sometimes misstep by these companies have wider strategic implications. So therefore, it's important to sort of emphasize that what they do in theater or in context is not always groundbreaking or changing or even efficient. Yep, I wanted to add, add to that. There's some important thing that we, I think, need to bear in mind. We're, we're now in a, when we look at network-centric centric statecraft and how states are delegating to surrogates uh, across multiple domains, you know, in full spectrum conflict, it means that the state actually is withdrawing a lot of control over over the operations of their surrogates. These networks are not controllable. They're heterarchical. They're not hierarchical. And so the strategic ends of what you can achieve through surrogates, including commercial private actors, private, you know, military and security companies included, is very limited. They're, they're very good at disrupting, basically making sure that your enemy doesn't win, but it also doesn't mean that you win. So these are below the threshold kind of means, below the threshold of war, in the gray zone, that are there that allow the patron, in that case the Russians, to remain engaged with plausible deniability for an indefinite period of time. And we're, we're looking here at everywhere, forever wars. And in these kind of wars, which are kind of characterized by a state of unpeace rather than a state of peace or war, something in between, it's in the gray zone, there is no such thing as victory. And I can't really think of any instance where, you know, Wagner really delivered a vict victory. But it's a part, it's one piece of the puzzle of a full spectrum conflict um, where it's about Russian influence in the end of the day. It's not about achieving operational, um, um, uh, necessarily operational or tactical objectives on the battlefield and then translating that into political ends. They're just one small fraction of a much broader full spectrum conflict. And we need to see them as such. And there are limitations of what you cannot, uh, what you can achieve when you don't want to bear the burden of conflict. And that's basically what surrogacy is all about. As soon as you start delegating, you are giving up, uh, you know, control, thereby you provide autonomy to an actor that might do eventually what he, she or the organization uh, thinks is the best way forward. And that is something that the Russians actually allow to happen. They're happy to live with it because they're saying as long as the French or the, the Brits or the Americans or other competitors are not directly getting involved in a conflict, we are actually able to win because at, or because we're at least we're not losing. And and that's also true for particularly what's happening, what was happening in, in Libya, where the French have actually supported the Russian approach because they've supported the same patron, which was Haftar and the LNA, together with the UAE and together with the Russians. Um, and th nobody really won this war but they are still there the russians are still on the ground they can they can still pull the levers and that for themselves is as good as a victory but it's obviously very different from our western uh, idea of victory as seizing holding and building uh, in a conflict zone this is more about disruption thanks so much everyone i'm very sad to end it there but i think that we have to so Thanks to all our guests and we hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson and me, Delina Goggio, goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. 
You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts, by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.